Welcome, my dear listeners, to Voices of the Sacred Feminine, broadcasting from Southern California across the globe. I'm your host, Karen Tate, uh, author of several books, two of which are Goddess Calling, and I'm also the editor of the new Voices of the Sacred Feminine, Conversations to Reshape Our World, Conversations We Need to Foster That New Normal. Well, tonight I'm coming to you from beautiful Venice Beach, where an awesome sunset is now in progress. Well, tonight, uh, tonight's opening snippet from Lisa Thiel called Warrior Goddess is appropriate for tonight's topic, Warrior Women of Antiquity, with uh, Professor Adrian Mayer, whose new book that's just come out recently is titled The Amazons, Lives and Legends of Warrior Women Across the Ancient World. With uh, all the talk of warrior women, Artemis, and Amazons um, over the recent weeks, and uh, this has been a trending topic here on the show. Uh, and uh, that's what's, uh, but uh, let me tell you what's uh, coming up uh, after my interview with uh, Adrian. You'll want to stay tuned. Uh, first, I need to tell you please mark your calendar. Uh, If you're in the uh, Southern California area, you know I sponsor the Joseph Campbell Roundtables in Venice at the Venice Library. And uh, the second one in the series will be May 9th from 11 to 1. Um, The topic is going to be Animals in Our Spiritual Imagination. And uh, the speaker will be Professor Sabina Magliocco from uh, CSUN University uh, here in Northridge. So uh, I don't think you'll want to miss it. Uh, also, you'll want to stay with me after the interview with Adrian for my What's the Buzz segment. Um, I'd like to share a few things with you, including some interesting articles. Uh, one is uh, The Seven Pillars of Sociopathic Capitalism. Uh, the other uh, is uh, from comedian Sarah Silverman, and uh, she posted 10 Rape Prevention Tips for Men. And uh, then there's the uh, 11 Native American quotes about women being sacred. And maybe a few other things if there's time. But uh, I don't want to delay too much getting to tonight's guest. Uh, I want to tell you that I attended a great lecture of Adrian's uh, that she gave at the Getty Museum in Los Angeles recently, where there was standing room only, I have to tell you, Uh, and the topic uh, was just that popular, and it was my pleasure to meet her afterwards, and uh, I felt like it was a great gift and uh, my honor to have her on the show tonight. I've been looking forward to this chat for some time, but... um, 
let me tell you just a little bit more about all her accomplishments so you have a sense of how popular she is and uh, how uh, well-rounded all her research is as well. Uh, Adrian Mayer is a research scholar in classics and history of science at Stanford University. She's the author of five books translated into ten languages, The Poison King, Nonfiction finalist for the 2009 National Book Award and 2010 Independent Publishers Book Award for a biography. The, the one we're talking about tonight, The Amazons, Lives and Legends of Warrior Women Across the Ancient World. Then she also has out the, uh, the first fossil hunters, fossil legends of the first Americans, and Greek fire, poison arrows, and scorpion bombs. Uh, she's a regular contributor to the award-winning History of Science website, Wonders and Marvels, and her work is often featured on the BBC, National Geographic, and Discover.com. So, Adrian, welcome, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's an honor to be on the show. Oh, thank you so much. Well, um, let's just jump right in. Um, you know, I, I know maybe some of my listeners might be more familiar with this topic than others, but, uh, you know, let's go ahead and start at the beginning. Um, you know, we know about the Amazons in Greek myth, uh, but, you know, there's, uh, you know, there's always the back and forth. Were they real? Were they, were they myth? Who were the Amazons uh, that we hear about in Greek myth? Well, uh, more than 2,500 years ago, the ancient Greeks uh, just surrounded themselves with Amazon images and stories. Uh, And they described the Amazons as the equals of men, uh, independent and fearless barbarian women who uh, actually gloried in their freedom, and they uh, they loved to make war. They gloried in, in warfare and battle, according to the ancient Greeks. And they, uh, so these were fierce warrior women. Uh, the Greeks thought that they uh, lived on the fringes of the known world, the, the world known to the Greeks. So they were thought to live uh, sort of beyond the Mediterranean, around the Black Sea, and then across Asia. Um, and as as many people know, the, the, um, the war, these war-loving women were the arch enemies of the Greek heroes, the greatest heroes of myth, Hercules, Theseus, Achilles. They all had to prove their courage uh, by um, uh, participating in duels with strong Amazon queens. So, um, so the Greeks, so so from the from the research, the Greeks believed they were real. They weren't just you know stuff uh, the bards told around the campfires at night. No, they, uh, the Greeks actually believed that they were real women, um, and so they they believed their myths. The, the Athenians actually had. A, their own myths uh, concerning Amazons. Ancient Athenians uh, actually were very proud of their finest moment at the birth of their city. They said that uh, an army of Amazons had come all the way from the Black Sea area to invade Greece and actually occupied part of Athens. And so this was a big test of the young uh, new city of Athens and, and their legendary king, uh, Theseus. And they, they counted that as one of their finest moments was being able to defend the city and defeating the Amazon army that uh, that that attacked um, Athens. And they, they, they had pictures of this on wall paintings and they, um, it was featured in monumental sculptures and it was on the there were uh, panels on the Parthenon showing the Greeks overcoming the, the Amazon. So these were really uh, 
uh, noble and powerful, frightening adversaries that the Greeks believed in. Okay. Um, Well, for a patriarchal culture like Greece, um, that must have been hard for them to take, you know, women that, uh, you know, could rival their best warriors, would you say? Uh, yes, I think the Greeks certainly had a deep and profound ambivalence about the idea of, of strong, uh, independent women. But, of course, it's, it's interesting to just, uh, I think most of our listeners are probably aware that the Greeks themselves had two uh, goddesses who were strong, independent women, uh, Athena, uh, who is often shown with a helmet and a spear, and she was their goddess of war, um, mostly strategic war, but still they had a goddess, a war goddess that they worshipped, and there was also Artemis, which you mentioned earlier, that was the goddess of the hunt. She also was an independent, uh, strong woman who was always uh, armed and dangerous. So, So the Greeks did have ambivalence about that, especially if you contrast it with how uh, ordinary Greek women lived. They, the Greek men uh, certainly oppressed their own uh, wives, sisters, daughters, and mothers. They kept them indoors. Uh, they weren't even allowed to be outdoors in public. They, left, uh, they were left inside to weave and mind children almost all their lives. Well, that was going to be my next question. You know, they they may have, I guess, on the one hand, uh, in a sense, maybe admired those women, but those weren't the kind of women, you know, they wanted uh, at the center of of their societies. That's right. And and yet, as I say, there there are all these clues about the ambivalence uh, of the Greeks. I mean, you think of the think of the myth of Atalanta. The, uh, the woman who was um, exposed at birth because her father had wanted a boy, uh, but she lived because she was nursed by a mother bear and she grew to be very strong huntress, sort of like Artemis. Uh, and she was uh, one of the fastest uh, racers. She was able to beat men and she wrestled men. We have vase paintings of Atalanta racing and wrestling men. And... Uh, she even participated in the great uh, Caledonian boar hunt uh, in, the, in, in Greek mythology. And it was Atalanta's spear that killed the boar. So that um, they've got all these myths of strong women, and yet they could not allow it in their own actual society. <laughs> well, and, and don't forget, we, we also had the Women's Olympics, too, in Greece. That's right. And... Uh, those were uh, Spartan women were, were allowed much more freedom than uh, than Athenian women. They were allowed to exercise outdoors, and they could compete in uh, in, in sporting uh, events in the uh, kind of Olympics. And Atalanta is sort of from that tradition. She actually came in the mythology. She is from the area around Sparta. So it's possible that uh, um, there were stories equating Spartan women with Amazons of myth, but we just they haven't survived, so we don't know. I suspect there were. So, so these uh, so these women who were um, on the fringes of the known Greek world. Um, I, I believe I remember you speaking in the lecture that they were really called they they were really from a culture called I think Sauromatians. Uh, if that's right, I mean, feel free to correct me. Um, is is that correct? And where in the world was that? Um, well, yeah, many people have wondered, was there anything real about Amazons? And we do now know that those Greek stories and images and pictures of Amazons 
were at least partly influenced by the lives of uh, nomads of the steppes who roamed those vast lands uh, north and east of the Aegean. They were called Thracians, Sarmatians, Maeotians, Saka, and um, Scythians, many other names of, of these tribes. But the Greeks had a sort of collective name for them. They called them Scythians, and they called that land, that vast region, uh, of the nomad uh, of the nomad cultures, Scythia. Um, Sarmatians were, were a, a sort of confederation of Scythian tribes, and oh, among those people, yeah. They, so Sarmatians is uh, is they they were a large uh, confederation that appeared about 700 BC on the steppes, a uh, confederation of uh, unified uh, Scythian tribes. And among these nomadic people, uh, girls and women rode horses, just like the boys and men. Uh, the women went hunting with bows and arrows, spears. Um, the women knew how to defend themselves, uh, and they even went to war, just like the men. And, and of course, the, live, and the more the Greeks learned about these people, uh, the more details from that culture they started putting into their images and stories of Amazons. Well, so you mentioned different. that. Well, you mentioned that we have some vases uh, or vases that uh, you know depict the Amazon women. But what about grave goods or you know or things that were left from the material culture? Um, you know, do we know anything about their their religion or spirituality? Were they uh, you know were they also shaman or did they worship a goddess? Um, anything like that? Well, they, um, they were diverse, but they were all culturally related. They all um, had their own names and histories, but uh, uh, they were uh, culturally, re- culturally related because they all, uh, their culture uh, centered on, on horses and archery, and they certainly did have uh, uh, shamanism and uh, spirituality, but we, need to, we have to depend on... Uh, archaeology, as you mentioned, or uh, um, accounts that were written by their neighbors because the Scythian people didn't leave their own writings. So we have to depend on uh, sort of comparative ethnography of other steppe tribes that uh, were uh, were in historical times, living the same kinds of lives. And then archaeology has told us a lot about their culture. So thanks to the um, really exciting archaeological excavations of more than a thousand ancient Scythian graves, and and those are from you know, most of them are in Ukraine, southern Russia, the Caucasus area, all the way across to Central Asia, and so uh, the archaeologists are finding battle scarred skeletons uh, buried with weapons, and that about 25 to almost 40 percent of those Scythian skeletons turn out to be female. So this is a, a surprise for archaeologists who used to believe that if you found a skeleton buried with weapons, it must be male. That's not true. Um, and and they're now doing DNA tests on uh, many of the misidentified skeletons that were you know previously just assumed to be male. So do we know anything about their culture in terms of if they were? Uh, matriarchal, matrilineal, uh, or because they didn't have writing that we can't know? Um, We can go by uh, the Greek historians who were writing non-mythological accounts of these actual uh, women from the steppes uh, of Scythia, and they they, uh, called them Amazons, 
uh, because they saw that they were uh, living the same sorts of lives that were described in the Greek mythology. And those Greek and Roman writers uh, tell us that um, they give whole genealogies of warrior queens uh, that they called Amazons, and they give us genealogies, and it's always the uh, matrilineal line, which I thought was really interesting. I'd, uh, they give the names of the the, the originator of uh, certain tribes, and then they mention her daughter and and granddaughter and great-granddaughter by name. We have more than 200 names of Amazon-like women from antiquity. Wow, that's a that's a lot of personal names for for uh, beings that were thought to once thought to be imaginary. That's, uh, that's you're not kidding. Well, yeah. and also too, it's it's wonderful that there's so much documented because, um, well, I I'm gonna I'm gonna assume you're gonna agree with me here, but if you don't, that's okay. I mean, I've spoken <laughs> to so many scholars who talk about how sexist academia is, and you know how male archaeologists or scholars will bend themselves into a pretzel to deny any kind of, you know, female leadership, matrilineal societies. You know, they they just can't ever seem to go there. But I guess in this case, uh, the evidence is overwhelming. Well, we've got we now have the we now have DNA testing and bioarchaeological uh, studies, and the DNA, DNA testing is more than ninety percent accurate, telling us the sex of the skeletons, and the bioarchaeology can tell us uh, about the the health uh, of the of the person when they were alive, uh, often how they died and the, their age at death. Um, they can even tell uh, whether the the person was injured. Uh, in face-to-face battle or uh, while they were on level ground or on horseback. All all kinds of uh, very striking information is coming from the new archaeological findings. Interesting. And, well, with and the, they can't uh, deny it any longer. <laughs> good, good. You know, so yeah. it's it's about time women uh, of, of ancient times get their due. Um, in in these grave goods that you mentioned, the skeletons. Um, you know, have they found? Uh, you know, in, in any of the archaeological sites or the graves, uh, you know, any, uh, you know, images of goddesses, you know, any precursors to Cabelli or Artemis or uh, anything like that, or is that sort of um, absent? I, um, no, it's not, actually. That's uh, one thing that's quite interesting. Um, you mentioned Artemis. The Greeks just assumed, because they had this huntress goddess, uh, Artemis, they assumed that the Amazons must have worshipped uh, Artemis or a goddess very like Artemis. Um, but what the archaeologists are finding uh, are lots of um, earrings decorated with uh, images of Cabelli riding a lion. That Those have been found with many uh, female skeletons buried with weapons. So we, we know that those, uh, those steppe uh, nomads uh, did worship uh, Cabelli, and it, was, it may have been uh, the females who were worshiping Cabelli. There's also a sacred site uh, on an island. Um, it's called Garrison Island now. It's in uh, just off uh, the southern coast of Turkey in the Black Sea, but it was mentioned in the epic, um, famous uh, ancient Greek epic, Jason and the Argonauts. The, in, the, in that epic poem, Jason and the Argonauts travel uh, uh, by ship 
across the uh, Black Sea and they stop at an island that they call Amazon Island. Well, there's only one island there and it's uh, now been studied by archaeologists. In the in the epic poem from the Bronze Age, from the time of Homer, uh, they say that Jason the Argonaut stopped at Amazon Island where the Amazons used to worship their goddess and that they sacrificed horses there and they said that there was a large, a very large black um, boulder, spherical boulder, that they found next to an altar. Uh, and they, the ancient Greeks identified this as uh, an Amazon site of worship of a goddess like wow. Artemis. But the archaeologists recently have studied that and they found a lot of evidence that showed that it was a site where Cabelli was worshipped. Interesting. The Greeks were on to something there. You can go to that island now, and uh, actually Tur the Turks actually make pilgrimages there. The Turkish women make pilgrimages to this island, and I think they're actually building an Amazon theme park on that island. Oh, <laughs> and it's called Garrison Island? Uh, Garrison Island is G-I-R-U-S-E-N um, or e S E N and uh it's it's um there are pictures of the of the large black boulder. You can go and many women uh in Turkey now make pilgrimages there believing that uh it will it will help them in um in seeking fertility if they touch that large black boulder that was once worshipped by Amazons. Wow, wow. So yeah. um I, I you've been there? Or, I or have you... not been to that island, <laughs> but I've <laughs> talked with the um, archaeologists who studied it, and they've sent me uh, photos and maps of the Cabelli site and the boulder. The, the boulder is a very large black boulder um, placed right on a uh, rock projecting out into the sea, and it's about 12 feet tall, a huge boulder. Wow. I, I, around. Well, I'm going to have to see if I can Google it later. That would be... Uh, oh, yeah. I, yeah. I, I, I've written a, a book on sacred places of goddess around the world. I would have loved to have known about that. That would certainly have made the book. <laughs> yes, well, it was, it was it was quite obscure until recent until uh, recently. I really had to dig to find the archaeology uh, reports, which are in Turkish, and I uh, contacted the archaeologist who sent me a translation of uh, some of the summaries of their findings, and then sent me photos. So it's been pretty obscure, but it's now. Um, you can Google it now. You'll you'll see pictures on it. That's really exciting. So, yeah, um, I think so. You know, I so is there any truth to the idea that they really uh, removed one of their breasts so that they could be better archers? You know, that is the one thing. If anyone's heard anything about ancient Amazon, that seems to be the one thing that sticks in their mind. Yeah, <laughs> um, and it's just uh, it's it's a. Uh, it's it's not true. There's absolutely no evidence for it. Um, archaeologists haven't found any evidence of it, of course, on skeletons, but there are also a lot of uh, female mummies from Scythia, and uh, they're exquisitely preserved. There's no evidence of uh, removing a breast. And in fact, it's, it's a physically uh, ridiculous idea because you don't need to remove a breast to shoot a bow or Thank you. I, mean, I remember high school archery, you know, and I'm not a flat-chested yes, woman. I didn't have trouble it's, shooting the arrow. It, it's absolutely no hindrance, and uh, and even and this idea was um, first suggested in writing in fifth century B.C. Greece by a Greek historian 
who was attempting to uh, force a Greek meaning on the name Amazon. Modern linguists uh, tell us that that is not a Greek word. It was a loan word into ancient Greece. And Greeks were patriotic, though. They didn't want to. They didn't want to admit that they borrowed words from other cultures. So this historian tried to force a Greek meaning onto the name Amazon. And you know, if you if you have a, a a in front of something, it often means without. And Mazon sounded a little bit like uh, the Greek word for breast. So he he suggested that it meant uh, lacking a breast. And once uh-huh. you say that, of course, a story has to, it demands a story. So, so people came up with this ridiculous idea that they sacrificed a breast in order to draw a bow. But of course, no Greek artist ever bought that idea. And in fact, other Greek writers ridiculed the idea as soon as, as he suggested it. So it, it's just a, um, a ridiculous idea. And yet it just has this, uh, persistence. Uh, he it has a life of its own. It lives on. So, so the name Amazon. You said that was a, 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 you know, a word that the Greeks borrowed from another culture. Yeah. Do we know any? Do we know um, what it meant? Where it came from? Um, you know, in reality, not sort of the Greek skewed version. Right. They, um, uh, linguists have studied this, and um, uh, I've talked with several uh, linguists who uh, have have tried to figure out. Uh, with, where this word originated, we're not absolutely sure. Um, there are two uh, very um, persuasive possibilities. One is that it uh, is an ancient Iranian or Persian word that it came from ancient Iranian for warrior, and that would be pronounced Hamazan, and it simply means warrior. So. Uh, it could have re- referred to uh, many Scythians spoke Iranian dialects. So it could have come from Scythia uh, and referred just to people who went to war, warriors, uh, you know, mounted right, archers. Right. The so other does, possibility does, that I really oh. like is, is Caucasian, though, because there's a, a northern Caucasian ancient language uh, in Circassian, which um, is around the Black Sea in the Caucasus area. And there is a word, ancient word, Pronounced Amy Zane, which means uh, forest or moon mother, and hmm. there are some linguists who believe that it that it comes from that. So it, once again, it leads back to a goddess worship idea. Right. Right, right. Yeah. Well, well, you know, and I'm I'm curious about these women. You know, these these warrior women. Um, uh, you know, so I, I guess my question is, and, and I want to try to phrase this properly, were, would you say within their society, um, you know, there were there were say two classes of women, you know, the women that stayed home and the women that were the were the warriors, or was this just something that, you know, maybe all the women did, and it was just part of what they what they did, uh, as well as like maybe birthing the children and. Uh, you know, would you know whatever else was called for in their society? Well, I I think it, um, what's really interesting is that it's such a contrast with Greek society. Uh, Greeks are urban and agricultural; they're farmers. These people that we're talking about, the Scythians, the, the people who had uh, counterparts of of Amazons among their in their tribe, those women. If you think about it, nomadic people who are uh, live living on horseback. It just makes sense on these harsh steps with a rugged life. You're always on the move. Uh, 
you're uh, always under threat from hostile tribes, uh, almost constant warfare, it makes sense to raise the boys and girls exactly alike. And yeah. in fact, we see in the graves, they, they have the same weapons, and they even, in clothes are preserved, um, they, they wore the same clothes. Boys and girls and men and women were all buried with tools, uh, pigments, awls, um, daggers, knives, and mirrors. Everybody had a mirror. Uh, so uh, the mirror could could have, some people thought that that, meant, that denoted a priestess. But it now turns out that men and boys also were buried with mirrors, which might have had a symbolic uh, magical um, meaning in the, in the grave goods. But it's also occurred to me that if everyone had a mirror along with, you know, fire starters and whetstones and tools, maybe they used mirrors to signal each other on the steps. Hmm. But everyone was raised the same. So girls are learning how to shoot a bow and arrow and ride along with their brothers. And so, so that means everyone, yeah, everyone can defend the tribe and everyone can ride out to war if they have to. And it, it seems that, according to the archaeologists, which matches what the ancient Greeks told us, that uh, the younger women... Um, teenagers and young women um, served as active duty warriors uh, and they could not uh, form a union and have children until they had proven themselves, uh, you know, wor- worthy to the tribe. That just makes sense. That makes sense for both boys and girls. Hmm. Um, and so so the younger women are active and then uh, older women who had children could choose uh, to continue that lifestyle, that martial lifestyle, going out and hunting or, and fighting, uh, or not, or they, or they may not have. But it also meant in an emergency, everyone, of course, could, could, to, could ride out to war. And many of the graves have women's skeletons um, buried with young children. So we know that mo- and with weapons and young children. So we know that some mothers actually did fight and died as active warriors. It reminds me of the shield maidens of the Vikings, maybe, you know. Um, yeah, that, that's that controversial Viking. evidence, but I think there must have been some women among them who fought. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, from how you described uh, how they lived and the boys and the girls were all treated equally, it sort of suggests maybe an egalitarian society. Absolutely, and as, as I just mentioned, um, uh, the grave goods and the uh, grave findings and the uh, ways the skeletons are buried shows a great deal of egalitarianism in their culture. The men and women are sometimes buried together, uh, pairs, uh, couples, uh, male and female together in the same grave. They have the same weapons. They were buried with the same honors. And women buried alone or with other Women uh, also uh, receive the same honors as male uh, warriors, um, and they, um, uh, as I mentioned, they, some of the female skeletons with weapons were also buried with young children and babies. But we also find skeletons of male warriors buried with children. So it, hmm. it really points to an egalitarian culture. Uh, you know, all of these grave goods that you're talking about, um, you know, I, I love to travel and, and, and visit some of these European and, um, uh, you know, Asian museums. Where can you yeah. find, you know, what are the best museums to find some of this stuff? Because I guess, I, you know, maybe I overlooked it, but I just didn't recall seeing stuff like that at, say, the Louvre or the British Museum or, you know, even the Anatolian Museum in Turkey. 
You're absolutely right. It's really hard to find uh, um, this kind of archaeological uh, um, uh, artifacts in uh, European museums. The, um, I will mention that the Louvre has a very interesting collection of uh, small terracotta dolls with movable arms and legs that are uh, they're Amazon dolls. They're like Amazon Barbies. And those were buried with little Greek girls. So we know that little Greek girls played with uh, Amazon toys, but um, where where would you find the Scythian um, artifacts? I would say that the best place to to see those would would be in Saint Petersburg at the Hermitage Museum in Russia. Okay. They're the ones who have uh, have most of the artifacts, and and those are the curators who discovered the um, tattoos that had been uh, invisible to the naked eye on uh, several Scythian. Uh, women who, whose bodies had been preserved in the permafrost, uh, naturally mummified. It looked like they didn't have any tattoos, but they hit on the idea of using infrared cameras uh, just to see if anything would show up, and it turned out they were heavily tattooed. Uh, it was just invisible to the naked eye. They were tattooed so that was just probably like the other common, ones. you think? Oh, I think, uh, yes, because there are several um, other male and female mummies that have been found in the permafrost. That's in southern Siberia, Central Asia, um, uh, just uh, west of Mongolia in the Altai Mountains. Maybe some people have heard of the, the famous Ice Princess. She was uh, a, a mummy from about the 5th century BC, uh, and, and she was um, tattooed with uh, fantastic animals and griffins and birds and several other uh, Scythian women have been found with their skin preserved, and they're they're engraved with tattoos. They're quite well, we, amazing. We, you could Google that and see them. They're, they're amazing. Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, um, I I do know a little bit about that. Um, when I when I wrote that Sacred Places book, you know, I was trying yeah. to cover the whole world, so I sort of focused on that part of the world a bit, and I yeah, discovered yeah. Jeannie Davis Kimball's book Warrior Women, and that's when oh, that all yeah. sort of came out. And Jeannie's actually going to be on the show in a few weeks, uh, the last week of the month. So we're going to oh, wrap that's up. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, we're going to wrap up this talk of, um, you know, all of these, you know, these warrior women and all of these sort of findings um, uh, at the end of the month. But I find it so interesting. Um, well, so Janine, we, she's the first. She's the first to actually point out that it, the, the assumption that every skeleton buried with weapons uh, was male. She's the she was the pioneer in that. She was the first to uh, to call that into question. So that yeah. that'll be fantastic to have her on the show. Yeah, she's she's pretty awesome. She's here local. She doesn't live that far away. Yeah. I think she's near Santa Barbara. So, um, yes. so Adrian, were these folks the ancestors of uh, Genghis Khan and those sorts of people? Well, it, you have to you have to realize what a vast space we're talking, vast territory we're talking about. It's, it stretches from the mouth of the Danube uh, uh, on, on the western coast of the Black Sea all the way to uh, the Wall of China, ancient Scythia. So there are just myriad tribes who waxed and waned in uh, size and power, and sometimes they came together in coalitions, like I mentioned, the Sar- Sarmatians, and other times they actually went extinct or they were absorbed into other tribes over uh, about a thousand-year period from 700 B.C. up to about 500 A.D. And then, and then uh, after the Arab conquest, 
the status of women changed uh, quite a bit. So um, it, it's it's really hard to know uh, exactly. You can't pinpoint what exactly happened to the ancient Scythians. Okay. Why they disappeared. Um, well, well, getting back to the Greek women versus the, you know, Amazon women, do we know um, what the Greek women or the Spartan women, what they thought of these Scythian women? Uh, unfortunately, women uh, weren't allowed to write, <laughs> read and write. So um, we don't have uh, uh, writings by women about Amazons, but we do have artifacts Uh one thing that really surprised me is that Amazons were wildly popular in Greek art. And they appear on um, thousands of uh, Greek vases that have survived. So, and that's only, you know, a small percentage of what really existed in antiquity. So they they were popular everywhere. And and you know, we we know that uh, boys and girls, men and women alike, all knew these stories by heart about Amazons, and they saw them in their artwork everywhere they looked, public artwork, and then in their pottery, the the thing that really struck me is that there are so many perfume jars owned by ancient Greek women that are decorated with Amazons, uh, Amazons with their weapons and their fabulous outfits and even with tattoos and uh, so maybe they uh, all kinds of things. So, maybe they aspired yeah. to have a different sort of life and uh, well, maybe they, they, they envied these women. Yeah. <laughs> I think so, and and then we find Amazons are really popular also on uh, pottery that was used by men only at their uh, male-only symposia uh, at, at these drinking parties. They also used vases and craters and pitchers and cups that were decorated with Amazons. So both men and women in ancient Greece uh, were really fascinated by Amazons, and as I said, little girls played with dolls, um, we don't really know what Greek women thought about them, but if they've got them on their perfume jars, there are yeah. jewelry boxes with decorated with Amazons. There are uh, cosmetic uh, um, boxes and jars decorated with Amazons, and there are even Amazon battle scenes on uh, equipment for sewing and weaving that ancient Greek women used. So there's just something something going on in Greek private life that maybe we don't know about. Well, speaking of that, <laughs> I just right now developed a theory. So so my theory is um, the reason that the men were, were so, um, I don't know, I'm going to use the word enamored or interested mm-hmm. in the Amazon women was because, right. you know, uh, and, and, but yet they didn't want you know, these women in their everyday life was maybe because, you know, they were thrilled at the idea of capturing one, maybe um, betting one, you know, but they didn't want to have to deal with with a, an assertive woman every day of their life. So it was a conquest in a sense, you know. Um, maybe it was a challenge, but it really wasn't something that they, um, you know, they, that they wanted to endure in their culture. I think I think you're really onto something there, um, and of course there there is the um, the Athenian myth of the king of Athens, Theseus, who actually did capture an Amazon, Antiope. He captured Antiope. She's the only Amazon of Greek myth that we know of who lost her freedom because she was uh, a captive bride of the king, legendary king of Athens, Theseus, the hero. Uh, of Athens, and he he captured Antiope and took her back to Athens with him, 
And so now uh, the king of the king of Athens has an Amazon queen. It's sort of a what if story, a very tantalizing and titillating right, for the Greeks. Because I can't imagine <laughs> if she didn't want to stay, she couldn't figure out a way to go. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you, you know, know. That's, why, that's why there was a great battle because the uh, in in the Athenian uh, mythology that I just uh, had mentioned earlier, they imagined that the Amazons were so outraged and uh, uh, seeking revenge for that, and that they marched on Athens and uh, meant to uh, take revenge and and free Antiope from her captivity in Athens. And so then there there were a whole bunch of uh, myths and legends about well what. What would Antiope do in that situation? Would she help defend Athens and remain loyal to her new home, or would she join the Amazons when they when they came to uh, release her? And <laughs> that was there are so many different versions saying. It sounds know, like a great sitcom. <laughs> sounds like it should have been a Xena episode. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so, so you know, the other myth that lingers with the Amazons, and, and you probably, you know, know if this was, you know, just one of those crazy myths that, that won't die, is the idea that um, the Amazon women, like the Scythian women, you know, they didn't care so much for men. They sort of tolerated them when they wanted to become pregnant, and, you know, but they gave away the baby, uh, the boy babies. Was all of that, you know, just sort of made up stuff, too? I think that was, uh, uh, of course, as we said, the Gre- as you said, the Greeks were enamored and just fascinated with Amazons. And some some ancient Greeks uh, imagined that it was a women-only society. There's, there's no uh, archaeological evidence of that, as I as I say. And even the Greeks, then, that brings up the you know problems of well, how do they perpetuate themselves? How do they reproduce? Uh, so they had all the speculation. And so several Greeks uh, authors came up with the idea, well, well, they, you know, would meet with neighboring tribes and, and uh, have sex with those men from a neighboring tribe, and then they would um, either kill the boys that were born and just raise the girls, or another Greek uh, author said, well, no, maybe they, you know, uh, brought the baby boys to the neighboring tribe and, and, the, and the men raised those uh, those boys as their own heirs and so there were there was all the speculation and some uh some said that they were good mothers others said they were not good mothers uh that they hated men that they loved men i mean plutarch uh, uh um the the roman era uh historian said that they were not, that they that they were actually man loving but then Homer calls them man-hating. So uh, <laughs> it's just really controversial. I mean, this was just endless speculation by the ancient Greeks, showing once again how enamored they are and just they're just, uh, just so curious and fascinated by the idea. So, so how late do uh, are these women surviving in history? When do we have the the you know the um, not the earliest account, but the latest account of this type of society existing? in that part of the world around the Black Sea and the steppes and everything? Oh, well, I, uh, well, for, uh, first of all, I think Amazons are always with us. It's just sometimes they're hidden or repressed. And so these stories po- keep popping up. We have the Greek, uh, many Greek uh, historians saying 
uh, talking about an Amazon uh, warrior queen, and then they say with with her death, or she died bravely in battle, and and with her death, the Amazons disappeared. And then you know a, f- uh, a few years later, another author will will start writing about. Well, no, actually, there is there there we found pockets of Amazons living in in uh, such and such area. So they they keep popping up again. They just never really fade away. Um, okay, and they're. And there are all these Central Asian epic poems that have only recently been translated uh, into uh, English, um, and you can read about them. There, there's uh, there are several books uh, about them, and they all feature Amazon-like women, but told from the from the point of view of the Scythian people themselves. And those those make very exciting reading. So we know that the the people of what the Greeks called Scythia. They told their own stories about their own heroines and warrior queens. And, and, you, and you you've documented actually, all of this in your book. Yes, I have in the last uh the last um part of my book, the last few chapters are about uh Caucasian uh legends about strong women, Persian legends, uh Central Asian legends and even Chinese stories. Right, that uh, yeah. that's what really intrigued me. So listeners should should get, you know, should should understand that we're saying that this was, uh, you know, you know, this sort of went, uh, you know, it really went east. This wasn't just um, isolated to, you know, areas north of Greece or, um, I mean, we've already said they were in the steppes of Russia, but but this, you know, this moves even further east, according to what you're saying. This this uh, yes. You know, this type of, of woman and, and the lifestyle. But, you know, I guess... And as you mentioned, the shield maidens, too. So um, so even north, in northern Europe. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah. It, you know, when you look at it like that, Adrian, it's almost as if the the way, like, maybe women had to live in Greece or women had to live in Europe, they were they were almost maybe the exception. You know, the way women were, you know, oppressed or... Um, you know, had to be submissive and say, you know, uh, you know, maybe England or, you know, or France or Greece, you know, maybe they were the exception while the rest of the world, the women, um, you know, they were living totally different lives. But but that was maybe swept beneath the rug by the patriarchal conquerors who wrote history. I think I think I think you're you're uh, you're homing in on something true there. Um, uh the Greeks do seem quite unique in their hostility to uh, independent, strong women in these stories. They, in every myth we have from Greece, no matter how attractive or strong or brave or noble the Amazon queen is, she ends up defeated and dead at the hands of the Greek hero. But in all the other cultures that I studied who had Amazon-like women in their stories and poems and epics and sagas and legends um, it's a totally different scenario they don't follow the mythic uh, script of the ancient Greeks where the doom Amazons to defeat and death instead their stories uh, the hero fights the Amazon queen um, they're so equally matched that neither one can win uh, they fight all day night falls uh, they decide to rest they agree to rest they take off their armor they fall in love <laughs> and then by morning, they announce to their two armies that they've decided to uh, uh, unite, 
their, uh, unite um, themselves and their armies, and they will go on together as allies fighting other enemies. This happens over and over again in non-Greek stories. So the, I think you're right. The Greeks are unique in this. Well, and you know what that's making me think about, too. You know, we talk about here on the show about, you know, ideals of the feminine, you know, how ideals of the feminine are more, uh, you know, that that have sort of been marginalized, you know, the idea of negotiation rather than domination kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. You know, so, yeah. so here their myths are talking about, in a sense, you know, in the end, there is a collaboration, there is a negotiation, there is a partnership, so there is peace, you know, as opposed to these patriarchal societies where there's got to be a winner and a loser and somebody's got to get their head chopped off. And the Greeks were masters of that. Everything was a zero-sum game. Either someone loses or someone uh, uh, wins. There's nothing in between, no negotiation. And in fact, as you as you're pointing out, these non-Greek stories are about negotiating, uh, having a treaty, an alliance, agreeing to go on together as partners in a companion uh, companionate uh, marriage rather than a patriarchal marriage. And so, it, so ancient, you know, it yeah. maybe look, you know, I'm I may be like grasping at straws and reaching too far and putting too much together, but can but I can see anyway, at least anecdotally, where a patriarchal culture, you know, like Rian Eisler talks about the dominator culture, you know, I mean, there's, it, it's, it's, it's all about, uh, you know, domination and, 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 you know, an oppression as opposed to partnership. So mm-hmm. I, you can see where those, those sorts of ideas would be swept beneath the rug in a patriarchal culture. They wouldn't want those to live as examples of how to, uh, how to survive if you're the one invested in dominating rather than living in partnership. That's right, and, the, and uh, in ancient Greece, they were very used to the idea of, as, a, as we said, the zero-sum game where there's a winner and a loser, but also they felt that if, uh, if a woman was independent and strong, then the only man uh, that would be in that relationship with that kind of woman would be weak, lily-livered, sort of uh, mm-hmm. uh, um, uh, not heroic they could not imagine compromise and companionship among men and women, apparently. Um, mm. And yet these other cultures had no problem doing that. Right, so, right. Yeah, It's yeah. such a shame. Well, you know, it's wonderful that these stories are finally coming out, and, you know, maybe they're finally yeah. coming out at the right time uh, as, yeah. as women are hungry for them, and, you know, maybe even men too, because, you know, we have so many allies in this, um, you know, in this battle to... Uh, you know, bring a more egalitarian, you know, fair and just uh, world into being, you know. Um, So it's nice to be able to look back in history and say, but look, you know, they did do this before. You've just swept this beneath the rug or you overlooked this or you buried it, you know. (laughs) Yes, it happened once before. It can happen again. And even, uh, you know, the great Greek historian Herodotus, who lived in the 5th century B.C., at the height of the Greeks' interest in Amazon's and steppe women, he he wrote uh, and described the Sarmatian way of life, uh, and he, he pointed out that the men and women negotiated uh, what kind of marriage they would have, and they agreed to have an, an egalitarian union and they would they agreed that they would raise their boys and girls alike and Herodotus characterizes this kind of marriage as fair and honorable 
you know, that that must have really struck the Greeks because fair and honorable is something that appears in Homer, appears in all kinds of uh, other uh, literary texts from ancient Greece. And so if something is fair and honorable, that's good. And so you see the ambivalence and just the tension that they must have had. Uh, it was both Absolutely. daunting and thrilling and threatening and uh, exciting, this idea Absolutely. of dreaming, dreaming of of equality and having a companion in a, in a strong woman. That must have been a dream of the ancient Greeks. Well, you know, I, I, I hope what you put in your book, uh, you know, becomes, um, you know, something that's taught in, you know, a lot of our curriculums, uh, you know, a, a, across the country and, and across the world. Because, you know, we really do have to start start getting the idea across that there is another way, you know, to do things, you know, if if uh, if we ever really have peace. So, and and um, it should be just, it should be common sense. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, honestly, yeah. when did common sense uh, get thrown out the window? You know, exactly. Um, so, Adrian, um, this has been fun, but I don't want to take advantage of your time and your phone minutes. Um, <laughs> uh, is there anything I, I haven't asked you though that uh, that maybe you want to share that's important that we haven't gotten to yet? Oh, I think we've I think we've covered just about everything. It's been a delight talking with you. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. And, Adrian, where's the best place for listeners to find your book? Uh, because I know after they hear everything you've revealed today, they're going to they're gonna want to have it. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. Um, it's certainly available on uh, Amazon.com, uh, and, but in, it should also be in bookstores now. Um, and it's available both in uh, Kindle and hardback at this point. And there's also an uh, audio book. Available, so uh, it's in three formats at this point. And are you going to be giving any uh, wonderful talks like you did at the Getty anywhere soon, or are you finished your book tour now? Uh, I haven't finished. I've uh, just returned from uh, Oxford and London, where where I was uh, invited to give a talk about Amazon's at the Oxford Literary Festival. And um, and then I was uh, doing a couple of interviews on the BBC while I was in London, and I have a few more uh, lecture lectures coming up. Wonderful. So I, I guess yeah. um, my final question is: Have you met any resistance to these ideas? You know, especially I guess since you know you're saying that you know these were egalitarian societies and and all of that um i mean is the is the research just indisputable but i mean that doesn't stop people from poo-pooing things anyway <laughs> but 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 are it you doesn't. getting resistance or or no there there's some resistance from uh some classical scholars who uh still cling to the idea that that amazons were uh invented by the ancient Greeks and that uh, it was almost uh, exclusive to the ancient Greeks and that uh, they were totally symbolic uh, and served psychological functions and that they were imaginary. Um, But they they will have to come to terms with the archaeological evidence that is uh, just overwhelming. So uh, although they cling to that idea that Amazons were imaginary, there's just too much evidence now coming out in archaeology and artifacts to to cling to that any longer. So I think they'll come around. 
Good, good. Well, that's that's good <laughs> to know because I I know the the feminist scholars had a hard time with Ian Hodder down, you know, over in Turkey, and you know they had to be really tenacious about uh, sticking <laughs> to their guns about the you know the the findings there. But uh, so yeah, I, I mean I know it's a struggle. You know, I mean people just yeah. don't want to rewrite history when new evidence supports rewriting history. <laughs> That's right. You know, even scientists can be stubborn that way. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it happens in a lot of fields. But, right. Uh, the evidence well, is Adrian, pretty overwhelming. thank you. Thank you. Thank you again. Thank you. And um, if you're ever uh, in Southern California, please uh, pop me an email. Let me know where you're giving a talk. Um, you know, I will be happy to spread the word, and I'll certainly come in okay. and, uh, and listen again because uh, you're wonderful. And thank you very much well, for your work. Thank you, Karen. Bye. Okay. Good night. Well, dear listeners, I'm sure you enjoyed that as much as I did. Wasn't that awesome? And we found out so much information uh, that uh, I didn't even expect we were going to find. So it was like a treasure trove. Um, Now uh, it's time, though, to turn our attention to Joe Carson. Uh, So have a listen. Most people see humankind is really separate from nature and separate from the earth. I'm as much of this earth as a rock or a tree is. And I came out of it. This is my mother planet. I grew out of this earth. As long as we conceive of divinity as above us or outside of us, or that our bodies are somehow less divine than spirit, there's no way that we can change our course. Well, if you've been listening to the show for a while, you know that um, that uh, that little commercial there is um, uh, to let you know about Joe Carson's wonderful film, uh, Dancing with Gaia. And you were listening to Serena Roney Dougal, who's a Ph.D., uh, speaking in Joe Carson's film, uh, which explores the connections between Earth energy, sacred sexuality, and the goddesses Gaia. It features 15 visionaries who give us tools to feel the life of the planet within ourselves. And you know what? The DVD, uh, you also get, uh, besides it, you also get a 45-page mini-book, and the DVD and book is just $20. You can't beat that. Uh, if you're interested in getting your own copy, and I hope you do, or you buy it for a gift for a friend, uh, you can find it by going to dancingwithgaia.com. That's dancingwithgaia.com. Well, that sound means we are crossing the threshold into the second part of the show. And uh, I'm not done with the sound effects yet. Here's another one. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, You know what that means. It means that uh, it's time for our What's the Buzz segment. And uh, I promised at the top of the hour I was going to share some interesting articles with you that uh, I think you'll be interested in. Uh, Why don't we start first with um, something funny? And uh, this uh, comes from Sarah Silverman. Uh, She's a a funny female comedian. Uh, And it was aimed at perpetrators um, of rape. Uh, You know, 
uh, you know, it's it rather than us always seeing these these guides out there for women that tell women uh, what restrictions they have to put on their life, their clothes. Uh, are they out alone? You know, uh, how are they dressed? How much did they drink? Uh, you know, it's always about the woman who has somehow uh, asked for it when someone assaults her or rapes her. You know, you never see guidelines for rapists. You know, you never see guidelines for the perpetrators, guidelines for the men. It's always uh, telling the victim um, how she asked for it. Well, Sarah got a little tired of that, and uh, she went to Twitter and caused a firestorm because she posted 10 rape prevention tips. And I'm going to read them to you because uh, most of them are really funny. So remember, this is for the potential rapist or uh, molester or perpetrator of assault against women. Uh, And these are his tips to help him uh, refrain from such, um, you know, from such behavior. Number one, don't put drugs in women's drinks. Number two, when you see a woman walking by herself, leave her alone. Number three, if you pull over to help a woman whose car is broken down, remember not to rape her. Number four, if you're in an elevator and a woman gets in, don't rape her. Number five. When you encounter a woman who's asleep, the safest course of action is not to rape her. Number six, never creep into a woman's home through an unlocked door or window or spring out at her from between parked cars or rape her. Number seven, remember, people go to the laundry room to do their laundry. Don't attempt to molest someone who is alone in a laundry room. Number eight, use the buddy system. If it's inconvenient for you to stop yourself from raping women, ask a trusted friend to accompany you at all times. Number nine, carry a rape whistle. If you find that you're about to rape someone, blow the whistle until someone comes to stop you. And finally, number ten, don't forget honesty is the best policy. When asking a woman out on a date, don't pretend that you're interested in her as a person. Tell her straight up that you expect to be raping her later. If you don't communicate your intentions, the woman may take it as a sign that you do not plan to rape her. I know, Sarah, um, Sarah's humor can be off-putting sometimes, but uh, you know she usually just sort of cuts right to the chase and uh, doesn't sugarcoat things, and uh, I like her for that. Uh, also, the other uh, the other article. Um, I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm just going to give you snippets of it. It was in uh, the opednews.com, uh, and uh, this is by. Uh, well, let's see. I'm trying to find the name of the author who uh, who wrote this, and maybe it's down at the end, and I'll get to it then. Uh, I, I think his name might be Charles D. Uh, if you want a copy of this for yourself, it was published. Uh, in op-ed news March 30th, and it's called Sociopathic Capitalism. And Charles D., uh, the author of the piece, says these are the seven pillars of, uh, of why capitalism is so sociopathic. Number one, only individuals exist and create value with private property. The individual's moral mission is to pursue self-interest and profit in the market. 
there's no commons, community, or public goods in capitalism, only private property. Individual selfishness is good for all. Number two, competition, social Darwinism, is a capitalist law of nature. Corporations must bully and brutalize workers to win competitive advantage and maximize profit and attract capital investment. In other words, the worker bows to the demands and supervision of the capitalist. Number three uh, is ecocide, violence toward nature. It eliminates the commons, creating the tragedy of the commons. It defines everything as private property. It creates climate change and other environmental destruction because it has no value other than profit. It externalizes environmental costs onto taxpayers, something it avoids paying. It requires unfettered growth and unlimited fetishized consumption. The U.S. Chamber believes our air water, everything should be privately owned, but we get to pay for their blunders. Number four, warfare and militarism. And remember, we're talking about the seven pillars of a sociopathic capitalist society. Warfare and militarism. Capitalism requires expansion to compete and grow, and that leads to permanent warfare to win global competition. It seeks to control other nations' economies and markets, to establish a hegemon to manage uh, global control, and to terrorize the population through violence. Capitalists fight for the fifth freedom, which is greed. Uh, Greed identified the four freedoms Uh, Greed identified the four freedoms of the people as the freedom of speech, religion, freedom, and uh, freedom from economic want. And, you know, this is getting confusing. I'm sorry. Um, Four freedoms of the people as the freedom of speech, religion, freedom, freedom from economic want, and fear. Noam Chomsky describes the capitalist's fifth freedom, which is to rob, exploit, and dominate to curb mischief by any means, and would this be why we are militarizing our police? I think you probably got that. Also, uh, the next one, uh, the fifth pillar, sociopathic class violence. In other words, inequality. It creates sociopathic inequality in which the few exploit the many. Class divisions define capitalism, a system of owners and workers with competition winnowing winnowing out losers and transforming itself into a monopoly system. That's why we stopped enforcing antitrust laws in the 1980s. Wealth is increasingly being accumulated and inherited by the 1% and by the 1% of the 1% who control most social wealth. They're also amassing more wealth due to lower taxes and loopholes courtesy of our government. Number six, goods, profits over usefulness and the public goods deficit. Capitalism creates market or exchange value rather than use value. A glut of useless, wasteful, and dangerous goods, which include junk food, tobacco, guns, and weapons, toxic um, 
toxic Wall Street instruments, oil, and that's just a partial list. And you know what? I would say even some of our technology. I mean, I'm thinking about that Apple Watch that has just come out that uh, starts at about $350. You know, maybe I just don't get it. Maybe I've gotten too old and, you know, I didn't grow up with technology from the time I was in my crib. So, you know, technology is just not that important to me. But you know what those watches, you have to have... Uh, a smartphone or something within, I think, 30 feet of the of the watch, so that it works. So if you have to have a phone, what's the point of having the watch? You know, why ha- why not have just one or the other? You know, I I just don't get it. I just don't get it. But I think that's one of these um, useless things that capitalism creates that uh, sucks us into spending money on that we really don't. Uh, have to spend our money on um let's see then the next the seventh pillar the final one uh, is politics uh democracy is a fiction and it can't exist with capitalism uh capitalism is ruled by the one percent uh corporatocracy is not democracy money creates power we have procedural democracy but not uh, any kind of uh democracy of substance uh, corporatocracy is the rule of, by, and for the corporations in the name of the democracy. Well, we know that. So it's a it's a sad state of affairs, and uh, you know it goes on a bit more. Uh, but I think you kind of get the drift. But you know this might be something that you might want to have in your resources. And there is a good quote here by uh, J. K. Uh, Galbraith, who uh, I have quoted before, he says, here in an atmosphere of private opulence and public squalor, the private goods have full sway. The real deficit is in public good and it does not exist in capitalism. So, you know, when, when we watch the news and we wonder why everything goes the way of the corporations and, uh, you know, nothing's really about the commons or the good of the people, you know, that's what this is all about. I mean, really, how long is it going to be before we see, um, you know, oil wells in the Grand Canyon or, or something to that effect? You know, how long before the corporations... Uh, you know, Orant is somehow getting controlled over the last few uh, public areas or commons like our national parks. You know, it, it's pretty scary. And if, you know, if it gets to the point where we see that happening, uh, you know, we've lost the fight. But you know what? I don't think we will. I think more and more people are waking up. And uh, on another positive note, um, I wanted to share with you these 11 Native American quotes about women being sacred. And these are found on a website called whitewolfpack.com. And it says, Women are Sacred, 11 Native American Quotes About Women. And uh, let's see, the first one is, The cycle for life for the woman is the baby, girl, woman, and grandmother. These are the four directions of life. She is being given by natural laws the ability to reproduce life. The most sacred of all things is life. Therefore, all men should treat her with dignity and respect. Never was it our way to harm her mentally or physically. Indian men were never abusers. We always treated our women with respect and understanding. So from now on, 
the the uh, the commitment is: I will treat women in a sacred manner. The Creator gave women the responsibility for bringing new life into the world. Life is sacred, so I will look upon the woman in a sacred manner. Now, you know, you might say that that's kind of hokum because you know we read all of this stuff about um, you know domestic abuse of, um, of of Native American women, but you know I think that's probably an aberration because. Um, of the difficulties, you know, if, if these people were had been able to maintain their own culture and not have it influenced by white man's culture, uh, that really might not have happened. And because uh, we hear all the time about these tribes where, uh, you know, men who misbehave and, and do bad things to women are, um, you know, ostracized or, um, you know, the, you know, they're 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 sent off into the wilderness. You know, they're they're banned from the tribe. So, anyway, you know, I I, I think that's important. So number two, uh, treat every woman from the tiniest child to the oldest one with respect at all times. Always treat a woman with honor and consideration. The elders say the men should look at women in a sacred way. The men should never put women down or shame them in any way. When we have problems, we should seek their counsel. We should share with them openly. A woman has intuitive thought. She has access to another system of knowledge that few men develop. She can help us understand we must treat her in a good way. And number three, the old ones say the Native American woman will lead the healing among the tribes. Inside them are the powers of love and strength given by the moon and the earth. When everyone else gives up, it is the woman who sings the songs of strength. She is the backbone of the people. So to our women we say, sing your songs of strength. Pray for your special powers. Keep our people strong. Be respectful, gentle, and modest. And that's from Village Wise Man Lakota. Number four. The honor of the people lies in the moccasin tracks of the woman. Number five, a people is not defeated until the heart of its women are on the ground. That's a Cheyenne saying. Number six, always do what your mother asks. Boy, that could come from any culture. Number seven, the elders say the men should look at women in a sacred way. Oh, I just read that one, actually. The men should never put women down or shame them. When we have problems, we should seek their counsel. We must treat her in a good way. Number eight, a spear is a big responsibility. I am one with the earth all around me. My land is beauty. That's uh, a Navajo chant, a woman's chant. Uh, And the Navajo is also called the Dine, D-I-N-E. So imagine doing that chant. I am one with the earth all around me. My land is beauty. Um, Number nine, a man who looks first to woman's outer beauty will never know her beauty divine, for there is dust upon his eyes and he is blind. But a man who sees in a woman the spirit of the great one and sees her beauty first in spirit and truth, that man will know divinity in that woman. And that's from White Buffalo Calf Woman. Number 10, all women in the world are like the different colored flowers of one meadow. All are beautiful. As children of the Creator, giver of life and source of all human life, they must all be respected. 
and finally the last one, number 11, the hurt of one woman is the hurt of all woman, women. The honor of one woman is the honor of all women. Show honor and esteem for all women. Consider and treat them with deference or courtesy. Well, that's got my vote. What about you? <laughs> okay. Um, next week on our show, uh, we will actually be uh, here on the 15th of the month, and my guest will be Selena Fox. She's returning to the show uh, discussing honoring Mother Earth, uh, not just on Earth Day but year-round because Earth Day is coming up very soon. And, you know, if you liked what you have been hearing tonight or in past shows, I hope you'll show your appreciation and support. Please go to my Karen Tate website. Uh, Once there, go to the Goddess Store page, uh, scroll down. Please buy a book, make a donation. It would uh, would be greatly appreciated, and it helps me pay for the airtime to bring you the great guests that you have come to know and love each week. Yes, I pay out of my pocket uh, to keep this show on the air. Airtime is not free. Imagine, just imagine, if everyone listening just sent in $5 every month. How fantastic would that be, sincerely? Well, that is my wish and prayer, and I say it to Goddess. Goddess, let the listeners of Voices of the Sacred Feminine send $5 once a month That's maybe one coffee at Starbucks. Show your appreciation and uh, help with the show. Because you know what we nurture, what we support, it thrives. What we neglect, it withers. And it's just a good habit to get in to show your gratitude. So that is my wish and prayer. I put it out there to the universe, and we'll see uh, in the next few weeks if anybody out there is listening. Um, And please uh, check out my Facebook pages. I have a new uh, Karen Tate author page. Um, I sure would appreciate it if you would go visit it and like it. My personal page is nearing 5,000 friends, and soon uh, it won't be able to take anymore. So I'm gradually transitioning things to the Karen Tate author page. I also have pages for all my books, uh, Goddess Calling, uh, Walking in Ancient Paths, Sacred Places of Goddess, and there's also a page for this show, Voices of the Sacred Feminine. So please, next time you're on Facebook, look for all of those, and uh, please uh, go like those pages and ask your friends uh, to like them too. And um, one more thing, while you're here on Blog Talk, I hope you'll hit the follow button that's uh, on that you know primary show page, and become one of the voices of the sacred feminine family. And by hitting that follow button, you're sure to get notices of guests coming on the show each week so you don't miss anything great. All right. Well, that about does it for tonight. Uh, I'm going to sign off uh, with some great music. And let's see, what am I in the mood for tonight? Uh, you know, let's go to Celia and do some of her funny stuff, uh, you know, because I don't play it that often. And, um, you know, it, it's a little edgy, but uh, it's from her Naughty and Pink album. This is called The Hoo Hoo Song, and uh, it's just three minutes. Have a listen, and uh, remember... 
tune in with me next week. I look forward to you being with me because you're gas in my tank and you keep me going. Good night. Have a great weekend. Ladies, you know what I wish I could show you, but ladies, you know what I need.